Section 15 of The Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. The Elements of Botany by Asa Gray. Section 13. Fertilization. The end of the flowers is attained when the ovules become seeds. A flower remains for a certain time, longer or shorter according to the species, in anthesis, that is, in the proper state for the fulfillment of this end. During anthesis, the ovules have to be fertilized by the pollen, or at least some pollen has to reach the stigma, or in gymnospermy, the ovule itself, and so set up the peculiar growth upon its moist and permeable tissue, which has for result the production of an embryo in the ovules. By this the ovules are said to be fertilized. The first step is pollination, or so to say, the sowing of the proper pollen upon the stigma, where it is to germinate. Adaptations for Pollination of the Stigma These variations and ever-interesting adaptations and processes are illustrated in the botanical textbook Structural Botany, Chapter 6, Section 4, also in a brief and simple way in botany for young people how plants behave so mere outlines only are given here sometimes the application of pollen to the stigma is left to chance as in dioecious wind fertilized flowers sometimes it is rendered very sure as in flowers that are fertilized in the bud sometimes the pollen is prevented from reaching the stigma of the same flower although placed very near to it but then there are always arrangements for its transference to the stigma of some other blossom of the kind. It is among these last that the most exquisite adaptations are met with. Accordingly, some flowers are particularly adapted to close or self-fertilization, others to cross-fertilization, some for either according to circumstances. Close fertilization occurs when the pollen reaches and acts upon a stigma of the very same flower. This is also called self-fertilization or less closely upon other blossoms of the same cluster or the same individual plant. Cross-fertilization occurs when ovules are fertilized by pollen of other individuals of the same species. Hybridization occurs when ovules are fertilized by pollen of some other, necessarily some nearly related, species. Close-fertilization would seem to be the natural result of ordinary hermaphrodite flowers but it is by no means so in all of them. More commonly, the arrangements are such that it takes place only after some opportunity for cross-fertilization has been afforded. But close-fertilization is inevitable in what are called cleistogamous flowers, that is, in those which are fertilized in the flower bud, while still unopened. Most flowers of this kind, indeed, never open at all, but the closed floral coverings are forced off by the growth of the precociously fertilized pistil. Common examples of this are found in the earlier blossoms of Specularia perfoliata, in the later ones of most violets, especially the stemless species, in our wild jewel weeds or impatiens, in the subterranean shoots of Amphicarpia. Every plant which produces these Clystogamous or bud-fertilized flowers bears also more conspicuous and open flowers, usually of bright colors. The latter very commonly fail to set seed, but the former are prolific. 
Cross-fertilization is naturally provided for in dioecious plants, is much favored in monoecious plants, and hardly less so in dichogamous and in heterogonous flowers. Cross-fertilization depends upon the transportation of pollen, and the two principal agents of conveyance are winds and insects. Most flowers are in their whole structure adapted either to the one or to the other. When fertilizable or anemophilous flowers are more commonly dioecious or monoecious, as in pines and all coniferous trees, oaks and birches, and sedges. Yet sometimes hermaphrodite, as in plantains and most grasses, they produce a superabundance of very light pollen adapted to be wind-borne, and they offer neither nectar to feed winged insects, nor fragrance nor bright colors to attract them. Insect fertilizable or entomophilous flowers are those which are sought by insects, for pollen or for nectar or for both. Through their visits, pollen is conveyed from one flower and from one plant to another. Insects are attracted to such blossoms by their bright colors or their fragrance, or by the nectar, the material of honey, there provided for them. While supplying their own needs, they carry pollen from anthers to stigmas and from plant to plant thus bringing about a certain amount of cross-fertilization. Willows and some other dioecious flowers are so fertilized, chiefly by bees. But most insect-visited flowers have the stamens and pistils associated either in the same or in contiguous blossoms. Even when in the same blossom, anthers and stigmas are very commonly so situated that under insect visitation, some pollen is more likely to be deposited upon other than upon own stigmas so giving a chance for cross as well as for close fertilization. On the other hand, numerous flowers of various kinds have their parts so arranged that they must almost necessarily be cross-fertilized or be barren, and are therefore dependent upon the aid of insects. This aid is secured by different exquisite adaptations or contrivances, which would need a volume for full illustration. Indeed, there is a good number of volumes devoted to this subject. Footnote. Beginning with one of C. C. Springle in 1793, and again in our day with Darwin on the various contrivances by which orchids are fertilized by insects, and in succeeding works. End footnote. Some of the adaptations which favor or ensure cross-fertilization are peculiar to the particular kind of blossom. Orchids, milkweeds, calmia, iris, and papilinaceous flowers each have their own special contrivances, quite different for each. Irregular flowers, and especially irregular corollas, are usually adaptations to insect visitation. So are all nectaries, whether hollow spurs, sacs, or other concavities in which nectar is secreted, and all nectiferous glands. Moreover, there are two arrangements for cross-fertilization common to hermaphrodite flowers in various different families of plants, which have received special names, dichogamy and heterogamy. Dichogamy is the commoner case. Flowers are dichogamous when the anthers discharge their pollen either before or after the stigmas of that flower are in a condition to receive it. Such flowers are protoandrous when the anthers are earlier than the stigmas, as in gentians, campanula, epilobium, etc., Proterogynous, when the stigmas are mature and moistened for the reception of pollen, before the anthers of that blossom are ready to supply it, and are withered before that pollen can be supplied. 
plantains and ribworts mostly wind fertilized are strikingly proterogynous so is amorpha or pawpaws scrofularia and in a less degree the blossom of pears hawthorns and horse chestnut in sabbatia the large flowered species of epilobium and strikingly in clerodendron the dichogamy is supplemented and perfected by movements of the stamens and style one or both adjusted to make sure of cross-fertilization heterogony this is the case in which hermaphrodite and fertile flowers of two sorts are produced on different individuals of the same species one sort having higher anthers and lower stigmas the other having higher stigmas and lower anthers thus reciprocally disposed a visiting insect carries pollen from the high anthers of the one to the high stigma of the other and from the low anthers of the one to the low stigma of the other these plants are practically as if dioecious with the advantage that both kinds are fruitful houstonia and michella or partridge berry are excellent and familiar examples these are cases of heterogone dimorphism the relative lengths being only short and long reciprocally heterogone trimorphism in which there is a mid-length as well as a long and short set of stamens and style occurs in lythrum salicaria and some species of oxalis there must be some essential advantage in cross-fertilization or cross-breeding otherwise all these various elaborate and exquisitely adjusted adaptations would be aimless doubtless the advantage is the same as that which is realized in all the higher animals by the distinction of sexes action of pollen and formation of the embryo pollen growth a grain of pollen may be justly likened to one of the simple bodies spores which answer for seeds in cryptogamous plants like one of these it is capable of germination when deposited upon the moist surface of the stigma or in some cases even when at a certain distance it grows from some point its living inner coat breaking through the inner outer coat and protruding in the form of a delicate tube this as it lengthens penetrates the loose tissue of the stigma and of the loose conducting tissue in the style feeds upon the nourishing liquid matter there provided reaches the cavity of the ovary enters the orifice of an ovule and attaches its extremity to a sac or the lining of a definite cavity in the ovule called the embryo sac origination of the embryo a globule of living matter in the embryo sac is formed and is in some way placed in close proximity to the apex of the pollen tube it probably absorbs the contents of the latter it then sets up a special growth and the embryo or rudimentary plantlet in the seed is the result end of section fifteen